0: From the political science department at UW-Madison, I'm Emily Tomlin.
1: And I'm Michael Makowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent people.
0: And this meant that I could both join an
2: extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars.
1: One of the most gratifying things is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, "Yeah, I used to think politics was boring.
0: This, this, this. this is
1: 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we are thrilled to interview Professor Scott Strauss. Professor Strauss is a professor in political science and international studies here at UW-Madison. He specializes in the study of genocide, political violence, human rights, and African politics. He received a BA in English at Dartmouth College and received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Strauss has authored, co-authored, and edited a long list of publications and books, among which the most recent solo authored are Making and Unmaking Nations, War Leadership and Genocide in Modern Africa, which has won four awards, including the 2018 Grawa Mayer Award for Ideas Improving World Order, and Fundamentals of Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention. He's published several books on Rwanda and co-authored a textbook on international studies.
0: Professor Strauss has received fellowships from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, the National Science Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, and the United States Institute of Peace. Professor Strauss was named a Winnick Fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and in December 16 was appointed to the museum's council by President Obama. He currently serves on the museum's committee on Conscious and on the board of visitors of Dartmouth College's Dickey Center for International Understanding. Professor Strauss, thank you so much for joining us here on 1050 Bascom.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we're going to start with a few little warm-up questions.
2: You went to Dartmouth. I went to Dartmouth. How exactly did you get there? What was that like? So my dad went to Dartmouth, and from a very early age, he was uh, he was promoting Dartmouth. I used to go up there on uh, alumni weekends with him, and it was just kind of a foregone conclusion. I, I wish I had thought about it a little bit more, but uh, <laughs> it was just one of those things that I stepped into his shoes a little bit.
0: What did you study there, and what was college life like there?
2: Uh, college life was so Dartmouth is a really interesting place. It's a liberal arts school, and it one of the great things about Dartmouth is that if you show any interest in academics you can have a lot of access to professors and so I I would say I got got my yaya's out in in high school and I became quite serious and in and sort of intense around uh, academic work in college and so I had a lot of uh, kind of connections with my professors and was sort of inspired to be a college professor. I also got really interested in politics there and I wanted to be a writer. So I was sort of interested in politics, I was interested in writing. I started as a creative writing major, ended up as an English major, but along the way was very engaged in politics. Um, and so that sort of my, that gave birth to my interest in politics and ultimately in political science.
1: I want to hear a little bit, too, about you were a journalist in Nairobi, Kenya. And I'm wondering, did that happen
2: in between your time as a doctorate student and your undergrad? So the story there is that uh, at Dartmouth, I finished all my credits, and, and Dartmouth ran a foreign study program in Nairobi, Kenya. Mm. And so this was in 1992, and my because I was interested in politics, the program uh, chose for me a homestay, like the family that I lived with, as one of the leaders of the political opposition, so this was a period in wow. Kenya when the um, Kenya had basically had around you know thirty plus years of one party rule, and so this was a period when that one party rule was ending and it was opening up to multi party politics, and it was super, I mean, fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, eye opening. I'd never really seen demonstrations, and police crack down on demonstrations, and I just sort of lived and breathed kind of opposition politics while I was a, uh, on a foreign study program in Kenya. Wow. And so I kind of had in mind that I wanted to be a professor, but I wanted some non-academic experience before I returned to the academy. So I thought that journalism would be my kind of way of, of, of doing that. And again, I wanted to be a writer at the time as well. And so I uh, returned to the United States and I trained as a reporter at a local newspaper uh, on Long Island in New York State And had a phenomenal editor who taught me how to write, copy, and taught me how to be a a journalist. And then I returned to Nairobi as a freelance correspondent. um, And I was there for basically for three years, starting in 1995. And from Nairobi, I ended up going to get a PhD in political science at Berkeley. So that was my story. So I I basically took six years off between undergraduate and graduate school. Okay. In which I was a journalist, half of which I was in... Uh, Kenya, but not just Kenya. I covered 15 countries in that region, and then I was, um, uh, and before that, I was in in New York. Did you do?
1: So you did a lot of traveling during your time in, there. Yeah. What kind all, of
2: things were you covering? Was it all
1: <laughs> African politics?
2: Uh, all African politics. Yeah, I was on the road all the time. Okay. Um, so the way it were, it was, I think probably the easiest way to explain it was like having a small business. My product was stories, mm-hmm. and I had to market them to. Uh, newspapers who had um, foreign pages so the the the, at the time so this is pre-internet in some ways and so at the time so the way i I structured this is before i left for kenya i wrote to about 50 i would say mid-sized daily newspapers uh, and and these were daily newspapers that had some kind of foreign pages but didn't have their own and had foreign editors but didn't have their own uh, africa correspondence as such and so i would say to them I'm Scott Strauss. Here I am. Here's my resume. Here's my portfolio. I'm moving to Nairobi. I'd love to write for you. Hmm. And I had uh, two responses, three responses. (laughs) And so I started writing on Kenyan politics for those three newspapers and then ultimately Tanzanian politics. And then once I started to get a couple um, news stories printed, I then took those clips, or we used to call them clips. I don't know if that's still the case anymore, And I I then sent them to a a number of other newspapers and said, hey, look, here's my product, and I'd love to write for you. And ultimately, I created a kind of stable of regular papers that I would write for. What it would amount to is I would say, look, hey, there's an election happening in Sudan in two weeks. I'd really love to go to Sudan and report on the election. And then here's another story that I'd like to try to research for you. And if I could put enough people, enough, enough, if I got enough bites from the editors, I would. It would make it worthwhile. So I would go. You know, I go to Sudan, and I would report usually one or two stories. I'd be able to sell them, and usually some photographs to the same story to four different papers with non-overlapping circulation, mm-hmm. and that would make it a kind of worthwhile from a financial point of view. And so uh, that's what I did. I did that, and I covered fifteen countries. And the biggest story I covered was the war in the Democratic Republic. Well, and Democratic Republic of Congo, it was then Zaire, and it was through that that I got introduced to the kind of politics of the Great Lakes region of Africa, Rwanda, Mm -hmm. Burundi. I was interested in Burundi before, but especially Rwanda, and uh, I covered that war from beginning to end, and um, and it was a very, very, very intense experience. I, Mm -hmm. I was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for what I did, so it was a very, it was a very form extremely formative period of my life i was twenty five and then twenty six and I was thrust into the middle of a very intense war with a lot of violence and it was very you know life changing in yeah. that sense um, so yeah so and then and then I went back to graduate school to study what I saw okay um, yeah so I faced a kind of choice when I was twenty seven about what it was that I was going to do, and the i i there was definitely a path towards journalism. the The challenge that I faced was that I cut corners in journalism to do what I wanted to do, which is to be a foreign correspondent in Africa. And I did not set up a career for being a staff writer at a great newspaper. I was not a journalism major. I didn't work my way up through their pipelines. I wasn't writing for those papers for the most part. So in some ways, I would have had to start over as a uh, as a journalist having had the experience that I had, or uh, that, that was number one. Number two was that, I mean, this sounds prosaic, but I wanted to have a family, and I mean, just what I was seeing among the war correspondents, which is sort of ev- effectively what I had become, mm-hmm. is a lot of, destroyed marriages and it just it was very hard to you know, it was very hard to have a stable life because you're constantly running off to you know you're, you're the news just you know, the news controls you okay. not the uh, not other decisions and I thought it was also a young person's job and so I felt like as an academic I thought that over time, I could be better as an academic as I got older and wiser, so to speak. Uh, And whereas I thought journalism, you needed the energy and the flexibility and uh, youth. That's how I um, made the decision. Um, But I'm, you know, I I could have gone the other way. And sometimes I wonder if I should have. But yeah, yeah.
1: So how did you end up at UW-Madison? Because
2: I got a job. Uh, So (laughs) basically. There you go. (laughs) So... um, so my wife is also an academic, and basically this is the place where we got jobs together. That's okay, how we ended up here. Yeah. um I mean, I loved my interview here. I loved the department. U W. Madison, as you both know, has amazing African studies,, yep. and you know, yeah. the best in the country, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it was always a place, you know I you know, you know, Crawford Young and Michael Schatzberg were like Eiley Tripp. These were like household names in my training as a grad student and so to be in a department with those people was pretty Jan Bencina I mean these you know was pretty amazing um but uh but ultimately the the reason I came here is cuz both my wife and I could pursue our careers here yeah you know uh, yeah so I had some offers from other places but that's how we ended up here great yeah, yeah. and I've been really happy here <laughs> that's awesome <laughs>
1: so maybe we can talk about one of your books sure Um, Your most recent book, Making and Unmaking Nations, War Leadership and Genocide in Modern Africa, explores where and why genocide takes place. One of the biggest questions people have, and certainly I have had it, in researching sort of mass atrocities and genocide is the big question of why. Why do these things happen? And I know maybe there's not a clear answer to that, and this certainly isn't something we can give enough time to in this podcast, but I'm wondering, could you maybe share some of what you've learned about the conditions that create genocide
2: or just some of the conclusions you came to in that book? The big one is they tend to occur in major crises, typically wars. Mm -hmm. So so you have to think—I mean, I think genocide is a very extreme ways in which typically governments deal with threats. That's the way in which I see it. And so— you have to have a broad structural environment in which governments are going to be teed up to think about radical solutions to some kind of usually security crisis that they perceive themselves to face. Mm-hmm. So we know that, and there's a lot of research to suggest that. I mean, there are some exceptions, but but broadly speaking, most genocides occur in war. Um, and so then the question becomes, you know, what, why do some wars tend to produce these kinds of strategic choices to eliminate large sections of a civilian population versus other kinds of wars or other wars. And the way in which I structured this book was to focus on those cases that had the conditions of genocide. They were in war, there was some usually kind of economic crisis, there was some political instability, like it had the crisis situation down pat, Mm -hmm. Uh, but where the uh, leadership tacked away from genocide uh, and tack toward a more compromising or less violent uh, strategy, and compare those to the con- to the very similar conditions, but where the the choices on the leadership side were were towards genocide. And so I ended up studying, spending most of my time in that book studying negative cases, meaning those cases that avoided genocide, mm-hmm. and those were like Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa, Mali, and Senegal uh, in particular. They were all in wars very quite serious wars, wars that were framed in identity terms and where the <clears throat> where the state ultimately uh, again committed low levels of violence or chose negotiation and compromise and de-escalation as opposed to escalation. The big answer that like that the t- sort of two big answers to that question so are you know war is really important but then it's the ways in which uh, political elites frame their political communities? Who who does the state serve, and what are the, the boundaries of, of the political community that the state serves? And what I found in the cases of genocide was that the state was seen to have a political community that was a core ethnic religious identity group, and those who were the victims of the genocide were defined outside that core group, and were often the ones that were seen to be creating the security challenge. So you have this confluence of of an armed conflict in which those who are challenging the state and presenting a security challenge are precisely those who have been defined outside of the core political community of that state. And the state responds initially by trying to repress that group, but ultimately, if the threat increases, are willing to take measures to eliminate that group Uh, because they're seen to have not a rightful place in the state and not a rightful Hmm. uh, bid to challenge the state. And by contrast, in those places where there was compromise. There was a very def- different definition of political community. It was much more of a plural political community. There was not the sense that there was one core group that for whom the state served and who was the <clears throat> core political community of that of that country, and mu- a much broader sense of fluidity around identity and around nationalism. That was n- the main conclusion. There was a secondary conclusion about sort of restraint and ways in which particularly economic incentives can um, cause leaders to want to moderate the use of violence because of the cost to the economy and the tax base. Again, I was sort of emphasizing those things that um, lead governments away from genocide as a way to understand Mm -hmm. genocide. And that was different from the way the field had structured itself until that point, which is mostly, let's compare genocides and see what they have in common. And I felt yeah. like we answered that question pretty well, but that if you follow the logical conclusions about about what the findings were, it way over-predicted the incidence of violence, meaning that you had those, those variables occurred in many states, but you, most of those okay. states were not occurring. Not, genocide was not occurring. So I wanted to try to understand the places where it wasn't occurring, but where our theory said it should be occurring.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Another book you wrote is The Order of Genocide, race, power, and war in Rwanda. Could you maybe give us some of the conclusions you came to in that book and sort of frame that in the significance of Rwanda in today's political focus or maybe contemporary focus on Africa?
2: So in the mid-1990s, you get a genocide that happens in Rwanda and you get around the same time, you get a similar crisis, not as intense in Bosnia. And these were, you know, extremely formative for people of my generation in the sense that this was sort of the first, some of the first crises that happened after the end of the Cold War. And I know that that's all very ancient business, too. But it was, you know, this is this idea that, that for 45, 50 years, what had structured the international environment was the Cold War and the sort of superpower rivalry. Now we had what we thought was the demise of the Soviet Union and um, I would say the sort of dominance of the United States and of a kind of democratic capitalist order. And the question was, you know, could that new order in the world be positioned to promote human rights, prevent humanitarian crises. And um, and there was a lot of optimism that the power that existed in those states that had them, and also in the ways that states delegated their authority to the United Nations and other international organizations, that there would be the opportunity to create a better world, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then you get <laughs> Bosnia and Rwanda. And Bosnia and Rwanda are, you know, basically under the UN's watch and under the watch of You know, international media, and I remember, you know, seeing daily stories about this at the time, Um, we have genocides being committed uh, by states that don't have a ton of power in the international system, and international actors just, just basically watch it slash facilitate it happening. And so the Rwanda one was particularly egregious because you had somewhere between half a million and a million civilians killed in three months. There were some kind of warnings about it beforehand. You had a UN peacekeeping mission on the ground. The force commander of the UN, uh, a Canadian guy named Romeo Dallaire, wanted to intervene to protect civilians, and yet the UN pulled out, you know, with US, British, Belgian support to pull out um, and so this idea, you know, was shocking that that we would have a state uh, with relatively rudimentary weapons—you know, um, AK-47s, machetes, rocks, spears, etc., you know, whatever people could find, uh, grenades—set uh, off and commit a true genocide in the sense of killing half a million, at least half a million civilians in three months um, under the watch of the United Nations It was mm-hmm. pretty shocking. Right. So the, um, my, my engagement with that story is I started covering Rwanda as a journalist in, the aftermath, in its aftermath in sort of in 95, 96, particularly 96 and 97 and 98, and um, through my reporting on the war in Congo, which we talked about earlier. And the bottom line was that the, what, what captured my attention was the idea that the state in Rwanda was able to mobilize citizens to commit violence on a large scale in a short period of time. The people who committed the violence in Rwanda were neighbors of those that they attacked. They had no prior history of violence. These are not criminals. These were sort of average Rwandans. Um, And most states in Africa do not have the mobilizational capacity to get you know, somewhere around two hundred fifty thousand people to go out, pick up weapons that they have access to, and attack people in their communities. So the question that posed itself to me was, how did they do this, and and what, and and how did this happen? You know, this is an extraordinary episode of mass violence. And so, the Order of Genocide, which was my first book, which was my dissertation, was trying to understand the dynamics of mobilization of how uh, people were pressed into that kind of violence. Um, and so, I ended up spending about six months in Rwandan prisons, where I interviewed, I did a survey of convicted perpetrators of genocide, and through a variety of data sources tried to reconstruct what happened inside in the Rwandan genocide. So
0: So what was the research process like for your book, The Order of Genocide? And how do you separate the emotional side of interviewing people who have committed these atrocities and not make it affect you as much?
2: The first time I sat down with somebody in a prison office, Um, I was pretty freaked out, and I was, and I was, and I was like, I couldn't get over, I couldn't look past the idea this person had killed another human being. Mm -hmm. And, and I immediately, like, introduced myself, and I was like, why'd you do it? You know, kind of, some version of that, (laughs) and that shut down the interview pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So, over time, I, first of all, from a research point of view, learned how to approach the topic indirectly and quietly, I would say, in a way that I I felt like I had structured the survey that could elicit more interesting and more honest responses. And emotionally, yeah, it was hard. I mean, I see my own research trajectory as a long working through of what I experienced as a journalist in the mid-1990s, where I was exposed to a number of massacres, and they left a very... very searing impression on me. And like many journalists covering war, I think we, you know, we can call it a version of post-traumatic stress disorder. And my academic work has been a long trying to work through of exactly how something like that could happen. So I wouldn't call it therapeutic, but I was already in that world, meaning I was already thinking a lot about why it is that people would kill each other on a large scale because uh, of what I had seen and stumbled into as a journalist. Um, and so You know, it probably took me 15, 20 years to not have nightmares about it. I I still get nightmares when I teach the course on genocide. So it's still there. (laughs) It's not an easy topic to teach, yeah, research, yeah. I have a
1: follow-up question, actually, about your research for that book. Like, to me, that sounds kind of incredible that a state would allow people to come in from the outside and let them into their prisons and interview prisoners. What sort of
2: process was that like? Gaining access to that? You know, it actually was not that hard. It's harder you would th- you think it'd be harder than it is. I mean, mm-hmm. the 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 current government in Rwanda has grounded its legitimacy on stopping genocide. So the idea that an outside researcher would come in and uh, and effectively promote the genocide crimes, yeah, I think they saw it as in their interest. Okay. The challenge for me was how to control the process, meaning how to make sure that. Uh, that I was doing this in a more scientific way or systematic way and so Mm -hmm. the way in which I managed that was to number one create random sampling procedures for who it was that I would select to interview so what I had seen in the past as a journalist but also for other researchers is people would go to prisons and the prisoners and the prison officials would choose who the outside interviewer would interview and so I thought it was a very biased sample that people were getting. The what I did is I would go into the prisons, and I mean, the most difficult part was I would try to establish a full list of all people who met the category of being convicted okay. um, and having confessed to their crimes, which was a condition of possibility from the Human Subjects Committee, mm-hmm. which we can get into, but the condition of my being able to do the research. And then I would use random sample number generators. And uh, <laughs> then I would, and that's how I would select who I would interview, um, was, was through that. Uh, through that computer program. And so that was number one. The number two was making sure that the interview process was secure, wasn't in the presence of some kind of government official, okay. that I had some kind of confidentiality in the process of the interview. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So, one nearly ubiquitous critique of the West and the United States in particular, when we talk about Rwanda and the genocide that occurred there, was the lack of action. You mentioned it a bit when you were talking. And I think that critique sometimes applies broadly to Africa today in general. Are there ways that the West and we as Americans, the United States, should change our policy in Africa? Are we doing
2: enough? I mean, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I don't think, I mean, not just this administration, but most administrations don't have coherent policies towards Africa. Um, they don't prioritize it that much, and so that there you know, I think there are good principles that, that exist, um, but, there, but often in terms of coherent policy, it's not, it's not clear that there is one. Um, so I think there are, you know, great, I mean, I, I think from an administration point of view, Africa is rarely going to rise to the top. But the question is, can you have a smart approach to uh, foreign, po- you know, foreign policy towards Africa um, in light of the fact that it's never gonna be at the top of, of a priority list? And I, I think there's a long way to go in that, mm-hmm. in that domain. For not just, I mean, the Trump administration is not paying attention to Africa at all. Yeah. But even to the Obama administration, I would say that there were, I think, um, room for um, a more coherent approach maybe we can talk a little bit more broadly about researching
1: and studying Africa, African politics. Sure. Um, so what are maybe some of the challenges and opportunities of doing research in Africa today? Has it changed over the years?
2: Why does Africa matter from a kind of global strategic point of view? I mean, number one, one of the things that we're seeing is a Uh, a different kind of scramble for Africa than Mm. we saw at the end of the 19th century where European countries basically carved up African territories for themselves. I think now what we're seeing is a kind of global uh, scramble for influence and resources. That's principally coming from China, from Russia, but also from Turkey, Morocco, India, etc., and I mean, as I think the United States relative power in the world diminishes, you're seeing these other states uh, seeing Africa as a place where they can gain influence and footholds uh, that ultimately, I think will be used on a global stage uh, for global power and global influence. And so I think that's a really important dynamic that's happening in the continent on the continent today. In addition to the questions of kind of terrorism, economics, Global health, development, humanitarianism. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I had one more. So, um, I'm going abroad to Cape Town, South Africa, this coming spring semester, and I was wondering, like, if you have any advice for me about like academia in Africa or maybe South Africa in general, um, and like maybe how it's different to, from academia in the U.S. versus Africa or South Africa. That.
2: So my my general advice is to try to to. Uh, meet as many people who are from South Africa, if you're in South Africa, you know, as yeah. you can, and not to be, your temptation is always going to be to hang out with people who are comfortable to hang out with, yeah. and who you know, and you can, um, you know, uh, you, you'll understand all the codes easily. Um, so not to hang out with a bunch of Americans or Europeans, but to hang out with people who are from South Africa. And uh, that's number one, be, Number two would be to travel as much as you can, as much as your budget will allow, and to see as much of the country or the region as you can, because it's, yeah. it's an incredible. South Africa is an incredible country, and the region is also fascinating and beautiful. Um, the academia, I think, South Africa in particular. Uh, I think, is going through a fascinating and complex process around all of its institutions and who they serve. And so the institutions, the academic institutions, the judiciary, the police, the state, more broadly speaking, were created and served the white population under apartheid um, for 300-plus years, apartheid since the end of World War II. But the idea of a uh, radical racial inequality and hierarchy has been a part of South Africa for a very long time. And so universities are not immune from that. And those universities were created basically to serve the white population. Um, They have a largely white faculty and historically have largely served white students in South Africa, even if they're only, you know, what, 10% of the population. And so the question is that, that many South African universities are facing is how can the universities both serve the whole population of South Africa And reflect the population of South Africa and that principally goes under the title of decolonization um, and decolonizing universities and decolonizing institutions uh, in South Africa and that can be a very very tense and complex conversation but one that I would advise you not to shy away from but to try to understand and be a part of even if you are not black South African or not Asian South African or Indian South African or whatever but I think those debates have resonance for the United States and and they're very, very tense and very, very fraught, but I think are um, are incredibly important and difficult.
0: Yeah. And last thing, do you have any recommendations of places in South Africa or just in Africa in general? Like if you were to say like one place that I would have to go or a student would have to go if they're going to visit the continent of Africa, where should they visit?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean. You're going to be in Cape Town. Cape Town is, you know, I think it's the most beautiful city that I've ever lived in. And it's, I um, mean, on the one hand, you have, it's basically this sort of band of land that is between Table Mountain, which is this extraordinary flat-topped Table Mountain, and then the ocean, which is a kind of preserve and is truly beautiful it's just an extraordinarily beautiful city with incredible outdoor life walking hiking biking surfing fishing whatever it is you're into um, you will be amazed at the uh, amount of time that people spend outdoors and how incredibly uh, how fantastic it is but Cape Town is also a city of tremendous inequality um, that is racialized. And when to sort of pay attention, not simply go to like the wine farms and the beautiful boardwalks in downtown and the shopping malls, but also think about the you know, the townships and the areas in informal housing where many, many thousands and thousands and thousands of people are living. Uh, so to be aware of those inequalities while you're there. I mean, I, I love so many parts of Africa. It's hard for me to choose. I love Tanzania. Uh, I love parts of Kenya. Um, I think Zanzibar is incredible in Tanzania. I think Ban Kilimanjaro out of Arusha is extraordinary. I think I love Senegal. I think the kind of Contemporary art scene in Africa is extraordinary. Um, that you'd find that in uh, you'd find that in Senegal, you have Cote d'Ivoire, South Africa. Uh, Mozambique is like the most beautiful beaches that I have ever seen. Um, incredible capital city, a history of uh, of socialist architecture, which is um, and monuments which are amazing. Um, those are some recent places I visited. I mean, you know, if you're into wildlife, the, you know, it's truly unique what you can find in Africa and Botswana and Tanzania, um, in Kenya, among other places, and in South Africa. I think if you want to sort of see an incredible dynamic city and think about the challenges of how to manage large populations, you know, go to Lagos in Nigeria. I think if you want to see kind of history and uh, old civilizations, go to Ethiopia and the churches that were built out of rock and uh, and Amharic um, and Giz, the language of Giz. And, of course, you have Egypt to the north. I, Khartoum is actually an incredibly beautiful city where you have um, the confluence of the Nile. And, uh, you know, I love Khartoum as a city. There's a lot. That's just off it's the top. It's a huge place. Yeah, it's a huge place. Like, yeah, I continent. won't be able to visit
0: everywhere, yeah. <laughs> but I'm so excited to yeah. see. I've been to Egypt and Morocco. Okay. Um... But I've never been to uh, South Africa and I've never been to anywhere like in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm really excited to get to visit a bunch of places. Yeah, I'm jealous now.
1: (laughs) Great. All right. Yeah. Um, Well, Professor Strauss, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a really interesting conversation.
0: We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.